tell me when to start. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. This is Christian Thwaites, uh, Brian Janikowski, December the 14th, our final webcast uh, for the year. Very glad you could join us here today. Um, there will be uh, a chance for questions. I think there's a chat box or a Q&A box, which is being uh, monitored by uh, Debbie Shog. So Debbie, thanks very much for getting us up and running today. I know we had a few technical problems. They always seem to get a little worse towards the end of the year, but I'm very glad everyone's here and can join us. So, um, so the broad topic I thought about was the, uh, we've obviously got inflation front and center. We had a big CPI number last week. We can't really open any kind of form of uh, newspaper without uh, without hearing about the, you know, the record levels uh, of inflation. Um, today we had the producer price inflation and that was quite high as well. Um, so there's obviously some strains going on in the economy. How bad are they? What are we gonna be up? Uh, what are we kind of facing going into the new year? And we've come off three very strong years for the S&P. Uh, at the moment, the S&P is sort of up, uh, I don't know, 25% for the year. Um, we'll kind of break that down for you a little bit uh, in a minute. But we've obviously had three good years where um, you know, people's investment portfolios have done very well. And that's, that's some interesting dynamics on the economy now. And I think we'll have some interesting dynamics for the economy going forward. So you know, kind of what can we expect for 2022? Well, the only firm prediction I can give on that is that 2022 won't be like 2021, but we'll kind of go through that in a little bit more detail as we go on. So uh, this is just yesterday's, uh, uh, some of yesterday's headlines ripped out of the Financial Times and, and Bloomberg um, and the Dallas Morning News. Why the Dallas Morning News? Because it's a fairly conservative newspaper. And so uh, they're going to have a slightly you know, less um, uh, objective view on it. But uh, these questions are actually pretty right. You know, why is inflation so high? How long will it stay this way? We'll cover some of that. Um, you know, US home prices uh, have been going up. That'll start appearing, has started to appear in the CPI. Well, a complicated way that it actually, you know, it doesn't mean that a house price is because it's sold for 20% more than the going rate opposite you on the street will show up in the CPI, but eventually it does have some connection with the lag effect. Uh, and those have been going, uh, going quite, quite strongly. Um, Mohammed El Aryan, you know, you can't stick a microphone in front of him without him opining something. It's usually complete rubbish, but uh, but he is, he gets uh, a lot of airtime between Bloomberg and the FT. But um, you know, he says this is the uh, in worst call ever by the Fed, worst call ever. And so he's obviously including in that the ten years when the Fed kept real interest rates at twelve percent during the Great Depression. Prices fell by ten percent a year, and there's thirty percent unemployment. I would have thought that would have ranked slightly higher than this one, but uh, there you go. It made a good headline. Um, and then there's the FT, a little bit more sober about it, saying US consumer prices longest biggest annual gain since my thing's over the top, but I suspect it's around about 1982. Now, all this is true. All this is exactly kind of what has been in the pipeline and what we've been talking about. And we will continue to talk about it at least till, since next, till next March for reasons I'll continue to explain. Uh, so this headline inflation, you know, is not a blip. The Fed has dumped the word in trans transitory, which is great because it's kind of one of those rather elastic, bendable word definitions that can mean anything from I'm here for five minutes and I'm here for four, I'm here for five years. Um, but I think that they, their heart was in the right place and they you know, basically meant that there isn't sort of permanent inflation lock into the economy. I think they're right on that. Uh, but anyway, we are likely to see inflation, you know, keep uh, keep going uh, as a as a headline story for quite a few more months uh, yet. Um, so these are our kind of quick hits on what what uh, what we're looking at uh, as the back end of the year. Uh, uh, Omicron, I hope I'm pronouncing that you uh, Greek specialists um, correctly, but. That's definitely going to put a damper on back to normal. It already has in Europe. Um, here in California, we've got a new mask mandate. Obviously, we thought most of that was behind us. So there's going to be some, you know, changes in consumer gathering behavior. I think the classic sort of lockdown industries might have a bit of a setback, maybe not airlines, but maybe hotels, restaurants, cinemas, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think there's a general COVID fatigue right across the world. Um, and a resistance to you know big, you know big 
lockdowns like we had obviously in, in March of April of 2020 doesn't mean that it won't continue to affect us. I kind of have this sneaky feeling that COVID's going to be around in some form or another for quite some time, uh, either in different waves or different levels of uh, morbidity and hospitalizations and so on. But, um, but I, I don't think we're going to go back to a full-blown lockdown. Inflation will remain with us for a few months. Um, I mean, some of this, there's a number of components driving inflation. The biggest ride driving the core, the, the headline inflation, not so much the core inflation, uh, is, is the oil price rise, which, you know, last year we saw almost single digit oil, uh, and now we're up in the 55s and 60s. And so uh, that base effect will mean the oil price year on year will begin to recede a little bit. Uh, but that's obviously not happening right now. We're still looking at a year ago when it was, I don't know, 25, 30 bucks. Now it's you know, in the 50s. So, um, so definitely the headline inflation will only start to ease as the oil prices year on year eases up, but they will. Um, but this next point is very important. I'm going to come back to it later on, is that right now, the American worker, pretty much across the board, um, is, 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 uh, is seeing negative real wage increases. Inflation is up. People are talking about wages going up. People are talking about wages having to go up in order to attract workers into the workforce. And to some extent, they are. But they're not keeping pace with inflation. And so I'll show you a slide later on where you'll see that real wages are, uh, in growth terms, are just in a terrible place. And so um, if, if people are not getting real wage increases, it's very difficult to see the inflation. And I hate to use this phrase because it's very overused and it's been a, a real cliche over the last few weeks. You just don't see inflation spiral up, get out of hand, reach a permanently higher plateau, all these things. If real wages are not increasing, people just don't have the spending power. They stop spending or they start cutting back. So uh, that's very much the, the case right now. And obviously, we'll keep an eye on the real wages side, but um, generally the news there is, is quite good from a productivity point of view, not necessarily good. Uh, if, you, if you're not getting those real wages. But the important point for this, for this bullet point too, is that it's gonna put a lid on inflation um, uh, eventually. The Fed uh, you know, met last month, they're meeting today and tomorrow. Last month, they um, said they stopped talking about transitory, that's great. Uh, they, they made some slightly less um, dovish news. I wouldn't say it was quite hawkish, but they announced the taper. Now the taper is important because Obviously, Fed funds rate has been flat since the emergency meeting back in uh, February 2020 or March 2020 on the Sunday where they took the Fed funds rate all the way down to zero, which is where it is today. Um, and then they announced the different levels of QE, and then they settled in rather about last September, October, I think, $120 billion of, of bond buying a month, 80 in treasuries, 40 into mortgage-backed securities. So what they're doing is uh, is... That's, what, that's all that taper means. It just means that I'm going to buy less and less and less and less until I'm going to stop doing it. So they announced that they would be going from 120, they'd be cutting by $15, $15 billion a month. So, you know, just kind of stick that in your calendar next July, August, they're done. What's likely to happen tomorrow is that they will uh, announce an acceleration. Now, some some people say they're going to push it up to 30, in which case, the uh, tapering is going to be done in March. Uh, and my guess is that they will announce a bigger number. It doesn't really matter whether it's 30 or 25 or 20. In fact, it's bigger than 15 is what the market is signaling. Um, and that, that will uh, you know, mean that their level of bond buying um, decreases. And this is obviously the first step in the tightening process. First, you, first you uh, decrease the tapering, then you stop the tapering, then you increase the rates. And that's kind of the, roughly the way it's going. And they also change their language along the way. But um, so I, we think that, you know, with the recent news, uh, not just on the inflation side, but on the employment side, which is good news, um, they're going to be announcing that tomorrow. I'd be very surprised if they did anything else than that. If they don't do it, that means that the language, you know, something we don't know about the job, jobs market or else, uh, or they might just do it with a little bit of a, a bit more hawkish language. But this means sort of, that we'll probably see two rate increases in 2022. The first one round about, you know, March, April. Uh, that's not a big deal. That's that's very much priced in at the moment. The labor market is returning. Um, we've got some lower participation rates which we'll talk about. That is sort of an issue given that there was about, I don't know, sort of across the board about 62, 63% labor participation rate and it's still about three points under that. 
So that kind of is this whole story about the great resignation or depending on your political point of view, people sitting at home collecting uh, benefit checks and not going out to work um, uh, and or people looking to change their jobs and quitting their jobs and looking to you know go up the wage ladder. But either way, the lower participation rates I think are slowly coming back. Um, so there'll be more people attracted to the labor market as conditions improve and as some of the wages increase, whether they're nominal or real doesn't really matter. The, the fact that the wages will, in, will increase. Um, the Fed will have to really adjust. They've got the higher inflation, they've got the job market. Remember, Fed actually has three mandates, although the only two are talked about. The third one, stable interest rates, is, is kind of not, not, not much discussed. But obviously, the double man, the, the, the two parts of the mandate, which everyone knows about, is uh, inflation steady, maximum employment. So the labor market is kind of returning where, where they want it. It's not, you know, missed a few job numbers in October, um, uh, but we had a big revision up. So I think they're looking at the labor market, and that seems to be in pretty good shape. Uh, people are talking about a lot of job openings and some job shortages. So they kind of cut their eye on that and they know what's going on with the uh, inflation side. So really it's, you know, how do they balance the two? And so far, I think they've got it right. I think the guys who are calling for a, you know, a hard cut on the inflation uh, because the inflation side are hard, so, sorry, hard stop and start increasing rates are just asking for a recession to come up, to come up on them. Uh, so I think generally the Fed's doing a good, a good job on balancing these two. Uh, we don't expect the policy error, despite what many people are saying. They're leaving it too late. They're too casual about it. And we've had, you know, we've had a number of people. Um, I see, see this morning it was interesting because it was the next Fed governor, uh, Narian Koshratoli, to run the Minneapolis Fed. He's been out of it for about three years, but he was a big dovish guy, very good Fed governor, uh, and he came out and said, "Hey, maybe we need to, you know, tighten up. They should tighten up a little bit." So they're going to do that. I think there's enough good messengers saying out, you know, to that for tomorrow we'll expect a, a slight um, tightening. But as I said, it's fully priced in. The market's not going to freak out or anything. Okay, uh, so that's kind of the summary. So if you're in a rush, you can clip off now. You've, this is most of what I'm going to say. I'm just going to say it uh, with a few more chants. Okay, thank you very much. So the next one is, uh, this is the uh, Omicron at work. And it's interesting to see here. Yeah, we've had a good, this is a log chart. So we've gone from 240,000 in January. That's all good. You know, we got as low as, well, at one point we we're down to 20,000 and then this whole, you know, delta wave hit us. Uh, and the US has sort of had, you can see here this little micron wave and it's slightly tipped off a little bit, but it's still a, you know, I think everyone would agree that's not a particularly good number, you know, nearly you know, over, <laughs> over 100,000. Uh, but look at the EU, that's really, um, got, I mean, now they've got a bigger population, so don't, so, you know, it's not, this is not per, per head or anything, um, but obviously it's hit them pretty hard. Uh, you know, some of the components of the EU are shown down here. You know, noticeably, you know, companies that, uh, countries like in Asia have never really had a major crisis. Uh, you know, China keeps, you know, almost has a zero policy um, tolerance level for COVID um, and kept it almost zero by, by virtue of closing down whole towns and provinces if they have to. But Japan has been pretty closed down as well. and. It's not really happening there. And you've got these sort of slight upticks in Italy, Germany's rolling over and so on. So obviously the European Union was clobbered pretty hard. Um, um, and and the, again, I think that's, yes, yeah, part of the uh, changing vaccination rates and so on like that. So that this is kind of, you know, at work, it's behind us. It's not like Delta, I don't think. It's certainly not like this. So, um, you know, the, the vaccination program and everything else continues to go on in the background. Um, the, the American states are doing better. Remember, Texas had this big spike. Um, what's going to happen, and, and, and you know, you'll read about it, but don't get too vexed by it, which is that the states that vaxxed early, like Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, I mean, in Vermont's 600,000 people get too worked up about it, but these, these states had uh, the double vax and then the triple vax and very good uh, um, lockdown rates. So they'll start to see their rates increase and people say, oh, these guys, you know, all vaxxed up and now they're seeing their rates uh, increase. And the simple reason is that they got vaccinated early, maybe haven't all had their third booster. So some of the vaccination efficacy has waned. Uh, there are also places where if you've lived in Vermont in November, December, January, you know, you don't go outside a lot, you know, you're going to be inside with a lot of other people. So 
you know, to a lesser extent, that's what's going on in Connecticut and New York. So these waves are are going up. Um, this is this is not total numbers. This is rolling cases per hundred thousand. So we're way off our our peaks. But you have got this slight anomaly where you know three or four months ago we were looking at a lot of these. Well, not that California is, but te- you know some of these um, states which were sort of pushed back against the vaccination levels, and they were they were seeing rate spikes. You know, here we go with you know Florida right up here. Um, and now they're looking low, and then the guys who were very pro the vax, you know, were are now spiking up. But I think it's just a question of them kept catching up with the third booster, and again, being early meant that they're a little bit more prone to this one. But I think if you kind of put all this together, it's the story of the microns there in the background. It's um, it's a, probably affecting people's you know outlook, some economic activity, but it's not going to be a repeat of the stresses that we had uh, a couple of times last year. So uh, back to growth. Now this story is uh, pretty much the same as we talked about a month ago, except they've been revised up. So this orange line, forgive me, I'm colorblind. I know it's not blue, could be orange, could be green, could be something else, but anyway, it's 8.7%. That's the GDP now forecast from the guys at the Atlanta Fed. And they do a pretty good job of figuring out what GDP is gonna be for the current quarter using some you know, various inputs along the way. So they started at the beginning of the quarter thinking it might be as low as 2%, but that's because they were going off the final quarter here, uh, third quarter, which is in now at 2.1. And then they've just seen all this activity increase in the third quarter. So it's very much the playbook we expected you know, a, few, a few months ago. No big surprises, except they've just generally been revised up. So this third quarter GDP started at two, it's been revised up to 2.1. That's not a big deal, but it's a, at least a direction, movement in the right direction, sorry. And the 8.7, you can see it's just gone screaming up um, at this point. And this is, uh, this is updated as of yesterday. So the point is that you know, the growth is going up and we're sort of, you know, we're well past the pre, um, pre-COVID levels of nominal and real GDP. Uh, so probably we're one of the fastest uh, um, recoveries anywhere in the world. Um, so this is kind of going in the right direction and we've got, you know, a strong, a strong quarter despite you know, what might happen with the micro. It'll level off in Q1 a little bit. Um, yeah, the, you know, this is the headline shelter. There you go. This is the, you know, highest inflation since 1982 headline right there in your face. Headline, and you go all the way back here till, you know, Nixon and, uh, and uh, sorry, Nixon, <laughs> uh, Volcker, um, uh, early early Reagan, um, and, you know, that, that whole period, you know. Um, so, this is the number which is capturing everyone's attention. And the core is still pretty high as well. The core just flip, you know, uh, takes out the food and energy part. I'll try to explain in a minute why the core is not lower, but you know, it's definitely spiked up very, very fast. Um, actually much faster than it ever did back here. Here was much, you know, back in the 70s, I don't want to dwell on that too much, but this is so unlike the 70s, that the one thing I have to remember in the 70s is that this was gradual accelerating inflation, uh, you know, over, in this case, you can see mid 70s, you know, three or four years with a Fed that didn't even have an inflation mandate back then. They had a completely different uh, mandate. Um, and so now, uh, the, you know, we've got, we've got a, you know, a Fed that's, you know, on guard and, um, and some of the CPI numbers are, I think, going to roll over quite a bit. The shelter component, this is the... Um, the, the the home the owners they call it owners equivalent rent it's about thirty five percent of CPI so that's quite important you can see it's it's up there it's not doing anything too crazy um, but it's you know it's it's such a big weight in the CPI that you kind of have to watch this one three or four times more closely as you watch any other input into the CPI uh, but that's begun to, to tick up as tick up as well um, and I think that will that will continue. Some of the other components of CPI are likely to back off a little bit. But this is kind of what I would say, uh, what's, what's worrisome in markets is if you've got high and accelerating inflation. We'll come back to that in a little minute to talk about equities. But uh, you know, if it's kind of like 2 3% and accelerating, 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 that's when people can feel things are getting out of hand. And that's what happened you know, clearly in the 70s. But so if you kind of zoom in on this, we just look at the monthly rate. So, oh, there's the acceleration from, you know, the pits of despair where, you know, coming out of COVID, just everything, prices plummeted because no one wanted to fly anywhere, go anywhere, stay anywhere, see anything, 
um, or participate in anything or buy anything. So, you know, all that stuff was, you know, a level of monthly inflation of, you know, maybe two annualized. Uh, and then, you know, it just, it just went right down again. So this is the accelerating part. To me, this doesn't look accelerating. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, it, 4.9 is higher than 4.5, but you know, it's not, it's not at this level. So I still think what we're gonna see for the next few months is a kind of continuation around this level of inflation rather than the accelerating inflation. If this went to five, six, seven, eight, then all bets are off. Then you've got a very different uh, outlook ahead of you. But I just don't, I don't see that in the cards at all. Um, what we're going to be seeing is uh, this kind of you know, leveling off at inflation at quite a high level, at least as I said, till March or April. Here's a good example. I mean, new and used car prices are getting a lot of attention because people buy cars. The U.S. Uh, U.S. car market fluctuates between 13 to 16 million, 17 in a good year. Um, <laughs> units per year. I mean, it's mostly cars. It's mostly trucks, rather. But you know, but in these days, a truck, an SUV, is considered a truck, and it's it's interchangeable with a car. But um, uh, you know, that's that sort of bubbles along between those thirteen and seventeen million. It might go up if there's special deals, or if there's economies booming, or the population growth, or something. But it's roughly a pretty stagnant number. And the used car number is about sixty million, and that's rental fees and people trading in leases and so on. Um, so the new car prices, used car prices, we kind of covered some of that story about how the rental fleet sold everything, they need to buy everything back. Um, but the new car prices is really a, really a twofold story. First of all, the car companies, US car companies and their Japanese and German and so on uh, plants in the US just cut production last year, send everybody home, boom, you know, there was nothing coming off the, uh, off the um, conveyor belt supply chain um, factory. But, uh, but they started to open up in, uh, in May, June, July, but they did a very stupid thing. They went to all their chip manufacturers at Taiwan Semiconductor and so on and canceled all their chip orders. And as I mentioned in the blog the other day, the, the cars, leaving aside a Tesla for a moment, if it's gonna have you know, self-guidance, but most chips in cars are really basic. They close an electric window or your climate or the radio volume or something like that, or tell you your engine lights on. They're not very sophisticated. They're high volume, very low margin business. They canceled it. So um, when they were ready to you know, start making cars again, they didn't have the chips. And this is you know, what everybody knows by now. So they've kind of got a car which is 99% finished, except it's missing the 2000 chips, which actually control it. So, um, so there's been this huge backlog in, uh, in car orders, car inventory levels of sales outlets when it went from roughly three to one. So you buy a car, there's three in the back in the lot to one to one or even less. So that's why you're getting no deals on new cars right now. So it's showing up in prices. So here's the annual, you know, increase in, a, in 11%. You can see that, and this is, this is going back, you know, a long time, new car prices. It's never been this high, not since 1973. <clears throat> that's when yeah, well, I mean, that it was general inflation anyway, but there was also the gas problem, people changing, downsizing cars and things like that. Um, but you can see that there is absolutely no way the American car market is going to, is going to increase its prices at an annual rate of 11% a year. I mean, uh, you know, at some point you're going to be better off, you know, being permanently in an Uber if, 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 if that were to happen. Um, so this is going to correct. I mean, it, I mean, it's, I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to say it has to, but I mean, anyone would tell you that a, a car in an industry where there's global overcapacity, you know, in the global, global product, car production is about 90 million, where the margins are pretty thin for these, you know, big car manufacturers, Tesla aside, they're going to, you know, meet that demand in higher production. And, that, and their production right now is low because they're not getting some basic components. So this is going to go away. Right now, if you're thinking of buying a new car, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <laughs> unless you really have to, because the prices are going to be lower next year. Or unless you've got a nice, you know, 2017 Honda CRV with 20,000 miles on it, in which case you're probably going to get more for it than you paid for it. So that's just the kind of dynamic that's going on. Um, and I said, so I kind of picked on this one because it is a large part of the CPI. As I mentioned, this with used cars is between 7% of the CPI, but there's no way this 11% is, uh, is going to continue. It will subside as some of the bottlenecks of supply issues subside, which they are. <clears throat> the, 
this whole uh, debate, a lot of it is about well, how much is due to COVID and how much is due to you know every other uh, uh, every other you know a broader range of price increases. Because as I said, if you're, you're going to get worried if you see accelerating inflation, you're going to get worried if you see inflation all over the place, you know, in every single item. Well, for the moment, this is my good friends, Matthew, Matt Klein, <coughs> very smart guy, runs his own blog. Um, but he's basically taken, as have other people, and said, let's just look at the pandemic idiosyncratic categories. So we, we've already named some of them, but he's kind of listed them helpfully here. Cars, trucks, new vehicles, anything to do with energy, uh, restaurants, hotels, air force, admission to live events, club memberships, tuition, you know, everything which kind of, you know, went down because people stopped doing that thing car rental market, you know, Hertz went bankrupt last year because no one was traveling, no one was renting cars. And so you just take all of these things. People didn't need motor insurance because you weren't driving as much. You canceled your motor insurance. And so all these things have come back. So now he's saying, and I think he's absolutely right here. He says, well, they're about 30% of the CPI, but they're about, they're equivalent to this blue part of the increase in the CPI. So you've got about 30% of the CPI driving probably 60% of the price increase. So if you believe that these will not increase their prices, we use cars as one example, but used cars is even worse, that's up 30%. And just say, hang on, trees don't go to the, go to the sky. These things eventually will, will tap out. Um, people won't be able to afford them either. And you know, supply is quite easy to come by with restaurants and things like that. So eventually that will begin to subside. So I still see this as a, you know, a, a pandemic idiosyncratic inflation move. Um, more than uh, the risk of a broad price increase. And that's certainly you know, the, what we consider now. So I mean, just look at the number, blue and red, I think it's red. But uh, you can see that it's really, um, it's really a lot driven by these things that closed uh, and reopened and then had supply and or labor problems. <clears throat> this is just uh, the financial markets way of sort of trying to get a gauge on inflation. And it takes the difference between uh, a 10 year treasury and a 10 year Treasury inflation protected security. And those are quite expensive right now. Um, but basically, this has come down. It just look at this uh, orange line. When we met about a three a year ago, a month ago, sorry. Um, it basically, what it's saying is that the market expected over five years an average inflation rate of 3%. Well, now it's down to 2.7. And the and the and the ten year number was lower than the five year number and remains quite a bit lower than the five year number. So the ten the ten year Treasury market is saying, "Hey, we get this whole inflation story. We know that it's going to be more short term, hence the five years longer than the ten year, and we're not too worried about it being you know really bad. If it was really bad, this blue number would be way higher." And look at back here pretty much the same as it was 11 and 12 and 13. All these were good economic years. I mean, yeah, this got very low inflation for three or four years here, uh, but we're nearly there. This is not a number to get particularly scared by, you know, especially given where it came from in this deflationary period. So that's the financial market really saying, yep, five-year inflation might be a bit of a problem. Uh, um, Longer-term inflation, less of a problem. Um, the other thing that's happening is that there's kind of a bias strike going on. So what consumers are saying in, in the big numbers in consumer sentiment is, is, is down quite a bit, but consumer sentiment, you have to really look at what people say versus what they do. And, uh, and they can also be very you know, headline affected. So consumer sentiment can go down if the stock market goes down, it can go down if you know, they lose a job or something like that. So, it, I mean, it is important, but it's not, you know, it's not cast in stone. But what they're saying right now, one of the questions they're asked is, is this a good time to buy, and in the case of the blue line, a household appliance like a washing machine? And is it a good time to buy a car? And back here, people said, yes, it is. And now they're going, no, it isn't. So what's, going, what's happening is if, I tried to explain this the other day, and maybe I'll try, I'll, I'll try it again. If people really thought inflation was taking off, and you wanted a car, you would go out and buy one. If you thought that it's going to be 20% higher in a year or two years from now, you buy it now. Same with the washing machine. So what's, what's happening is the reverse. People are saying, now is not good a good time to buy, but I think six months from now, it will be. So I'm going to go on strike. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, the, the volume and the, and, the, and the demand for these things have dropped. 
Um, and this is what consumers are saying. I say, well, now's not a good time to buy it. Doesn't mean I'll never buy it. I still want to buy it, but I'm not going to buy it now because I think it's going to be lower in price um, when all this stuff is over. So that's interesting. Um, in, in high inflation times, buyers do not go on strike. Remember, if you're, if you're in high inflation, you want to get rid of money as quickly as possible. You want to get the paper out of your hands and into something else, a service or a physical good as rapidly as possible, because that's just going to cost you more tomorrow than it does today. But if you think that prices are going down, then you hold on to the money because you can buy it at a, at a lower price today. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but it kind of helps me to think this way that what we're seeing here with consumers is that they're pulling back on some of these major, major purchases for now. Switching over to the employment side, that's, it's, it's getting pretty much as good as we expected. Uh, I mean, pre, uh, the weekly uh, claims numbers uh, usually run about 200, 220,000. They did for most of, the, most of this decade here. Um, they're down to below 200,000. Remember, they were, I mean, they were ridiculously high at one point, six, 700,000 way up the chart. But all this does is measure the claims as a percentage of the, work, of the workforce. Um, and you can see it's, that's as low as it's going to get. Um, go all the way back to these things started and you know, roughly claims, uh, you can see the average, it's sort of varied between about 0 0.2 to 0 0.4. And now it's, uh, it's I don't know, 0.16, I think I, I think remember this. Um, so so th this, this claim story is, um, is is almost over in the sense that the labor market is pretty well healed on the claim side. Employers are not letting people go, uh, either because they've got shortages or they see demand or they know they've got a, you know, they're gonna have a skills problem if they do it. So, um, so this, this is getting, getting very, very good. And uh, that's, the, uh, that's the flip side. Inflation is not a great story. The labor market's a strong story. Um, and then on the claim side, uh, I'm sorry, this is, you know, new farm payrolls. So we had uh, you know, a bit of a lumpy 21. Uh, this is, you know, COVID and then, and then uh, sorry, um, the Delta wave. And then, and so they eased off a little bit. Um, and then all of these numbers were revised up. I'm, I'm drawing a circle around the sort of March to September numbers because they were all revised up by 670,000. So these numbers have been pretty strong. November was 210. It was lower than most people were expecting, ourselves included. I mean, we just read what other people are doing um, and saying, but we follow some economists better than others. Um, but I suspected this will continue to come back pretty strongly. Uh, the problem with the BLS right now is they're dealing with some weird changes in seasonal. So I think there'll be some catch ups and revisions up. Unemployment rates down to 4.2%, uh, that's the headline inflation, and the, even the underemployment rates getting there. So the jobs numbers are definitely you know, mending, you know, trending in the right direction. They're a bit volatile. They're not gonna look like this, you know, back here in 2019, where it was just 200, between 180 to 200, pretty much month after month. Here, um, you know, we're gonna see a few more spikes before we settle out, settle in. Now, this is my kind of earlier point is that you know, the, so, so how, how's labor doing? Well, the, the frightening number you'll hear about is, is well, average hourly earnings are up 4.8%, which is mm, mm, true of the people who are in working, but this is actually really what's happening. You have to sort of take the nominal wages and put them over inflation. But this basically says that whether you're earning hourly and you're a supervisor type or you're an hourly and a production non-supervisory type, uh, you're not seeing real wage increases. Now, sometimes the hourly and the weekly can change. You can say, well, I'm getting a good hourly rate, but I'm working less hours, so my weekly wage isn't as much. But whichever way you cut it, you're seeing negative uh, growth, <laughs> negative growth uh, in, in real wages every month this year. So, you know, that does, that means that the consumers are not about to go out on a splurge uh, and, and push prices even further up. Uh, I mean, I think generally, you know, real wages will increase with inflation coming down um, as opposed to nominal going up. But, 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 you know, basically the story here is that, you know, for most of this period, a lot of this period, people saw some reasonable gains, not particularly strong, but you know, one percent gains in uh, 
in wages year over year, and it's obviously gone severely negative right now. Now, now I kind of take this again simplistically. You really can't have persistent inflation if people don't have the money to buy it. They will start making priorities. Um, so, you know, this is, I think, one element which I think is keeping inflation back. There are big changes in the labor market that, you know, this is really clear what's going on right now is that this basically, I think it's this kind of lower cohort, take the lower 25% of hourly wage. And those people now have choices. So before they might've had to just suck it up and go and, you know, clean a hotel and work in retail for less than 20 hours a week, which means they had to have two jobs, less than 20 hours because benefits don't kick in below 20. So employers, you know, designed it that way and so people you know would carry two jobs and uh, have to be there and now they've got a few more choices um there's 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 a demand for lower uh, wage employees whether it's you know retail opening back up uh the big one is the amazon effect i mean that i mean amazon has hired i don't know how many new people over the last year but a lot a couple of hundred thousand at least um, but it's, you know, the, the more Amazon opens up intermediate warehouses so they can get that thing that you want to have to your home even quicker. I mean, one set of, you know, supply chains and warehouses, if you want it in two days, it's a very different one if you want it the same day. So these are all, you know, building up all over the place, um, you know, warehouses, distribution centers, drivers and so on. And Amazon pays, I won't say really well, but reasonably well. Um, between 15 and 18 an hour plus plus some tuition reimbursement, some some benefits. So this did this didn't exist before. So people, you've literally heard anecdotal stories of you know firemen, teachers, school bus drivers uh, quitting their job and going to work um, at, at at these Amazon centers. They actually pay better and some of the hours are better. As I mentioned in the blog the other day, a, a Starbucks barista, which is you know pretty tough job. $15 an hour and you have to be there at 5 a.m. for 20, you know, and then they have 24 hour shifts. So, and if you can get 18 and sort of work normal hours and get some more benefits, that's a, that's a no brainer. So what's happening is that people are, uh, you know, employers are, are not laying people off as much as they used to way down here, having spiked up here and normally run about here uh, and they're quitting and they're saying, oh, I don't need to be in this job. There's a better one down the road and they're quite happy to do it. I think it's all good because you get a healthy labor market. What's better? People sort of you know going up the going up the chain, maybe getting a bit more disposable income, better hours, better coverage, more management over their time, less stress, or you know working for lousy rates and and not getting anywhere. I think generally as an economy, broad economy, the former is better than the latter. So I, I think you know we're going kind of going to this places where employ, employers are having to figure this out, realizing my God, my people are quitting. Why are they quitting? And and uh, I better hold on to them a little bit longer. So there's just definitely the dynamics going on in the labor force, which is, I think, is benefiting the lower pay group. And here you go. Here, here it's a classic one. Leisure and hospitality has incredibly high turnover. I mean, this is everything from the guy who checks you in to the, uh, you know, person who might uh, check your ticket or, um, or mow the lawn. I mean, they, these are not full, I mean, these are not 40 hour job week, their, their, their shift and, and a lot of part-time. And you can see here that, you know, the quit rate has, has really gone up. So, um, so this is again, more people saying, you know, maybe I've got a few more choices out there these days than I used to. And that's, that's a good thing, I think, generally. Labor participation rate is very interesting because it has fallen. Um, and there's some weird things going on with the labor participation rate, but it's interesting. It basically it's measures how many, how many, there's an employment level. How many people are there in the country, you know, of working age? How many choose to be in the labor force? Well, some don't. You know, a 19-year-old going to college is part of the civilian labor force. But he's not in, sorry, civilian population. But he's not in the labor force. And then, and so then you're left with uh, how many people are, you know, want to be in the labor force and then how many people of the labor force are working. So the issue here is now how much of the labor force, how many people want to be in the labor force? And that number has declined quite a bit by about four or five percent which will say used to be about 62 is 58 if i'm wrong I'm, I'm wrong by a little bit not not by a huge amount so we know so the big cry is why aren't we getting people back well one thing is this top line you can see that the over 55 labor participation went up from this is on the left hand scale you know 80 to 86 this is people you know post the gfc they had to work they you know they their 401ks were blown up 
and they lost their jobs early. So they kind of stayed in the labor force longer. But now what's happened is that this number has gone down quite a bit. Uh, um, I'm sorry, this is, the number used to be about 30 and it got high as 40. So that's a big climb for the over 55s. Um, and, and now it's down here. And I don't think this group is coming back because this, this group has benefited enormously from two things, house price inflation and stock asset price inflation. So they're now able to, you know, and this 55 and age group is, is big. And in a sense, it goes all the way up to 75 or something like that. So those are people who are saying, uh, I don't need to work anymore. And so they're going to, they're not going to come back. And it has to be replaced by the group down here, which is the ones in blue. I think it's the most important. That's the 25 to 34. That used to be about an 84% part participation. Now it's 82. I think that's going to go up. And that's, I think, 25 to 34. Those are people who had home care costs, maybe not the best of health care benefits, schools doing weird things with, you know, are they in, are they out, are they at home, are they not at home? And, you know, and, and perhaps had a spouse, working spouse or something that was doing reasonably well, took themselves out of the labor force. They're going to come back more slowly, but they will come back as the uh, attract, as the sort of either wages increase or um, the desirability of job increases and or, you know, COVID begin to dissipate, to dissipate. So this big thing is about the labor participation. So I think we can take away, these guys are not coming back. Uh, I doubt that we'll see a spike back up in that age group. These guys have still got more to go. Uh, and I think they'll you know, slowly come back um, as, as their needs um, increase. Um, now on the bond market very quickly, this is, I've kind of drawn this on an exaggerated scale to show you what's going on. But this is year to date. And the 10 year treasury started the year at one, just under 1% and got as high as 1.7%. And today it's 1.4. Meanwhile, the two year treasury just was slinking along at 20 basis points and shot up to 64 basis points. So what this is saying is that if you hold a 10 year treasury, you're kind of looking at you know, long-term growth and long-term inflation. And what the market there I think is saying um, is that, that that inflation number and the growth number is gonna ease off a little bit. It's gonna be more like it was, well, if we took this graph back, it'd be more like it was like in 2017, 18, 19, where the 10 year treasury was roughly this rate. But the short-term rate is spiked up because they're saying, yeah, but the Fed in, in, in the short term, I'm running at 6% inflation and holding a two year treasury at 64 basis points. That's not a good deal. So I'm gonna sell that off and force that one up in rates. And that's the one the Fed will be able to control. And eventually, you know, by increasing rates, this will start to come up. But normally, this is what this is what's called the yield curve flattening. And it and it basically means that the market is trying to is, is worried about inflation and hikes at the short term, but not at the long term. So that's that's kind of the story on the inflation growth outlook. Blue line, think of that as inflation fear. And, and the other, other line, think of that as, well, the, the growth isn't going to be as you know, heady uh, and as strong forever. This is another important point that households have never been richer. Uh, this is the latest numbers on the household net worth. Uh, it's 144 trillion, it's six, 624% of GDP. Now, some of that is house prices. Some of that is uh, stocks and bonds. Um, some of that is lower debt. Uh, all those combinations. And yeah, it's skewed. I mean, this isn't an even distribution. You've got the whole Gini coefficient thing working for you, you know, the one percenters and so on. But it does mean that generally households are going to feel in quite good confident, confidence levels, uh, given the amount of uh, money that they have. They've never been richer. Um, I think I covered inflation and equities uh, a couple of times. So I know we're kind of running out of time. Um, I would say that I used this chart last time. It's just a reminder that the in, generally stocks are a very good hedge against inflation. Makes sense. You know, people, it's not a it's not a fixed dividend. It's a floating dividend, and it's in nominal terms, and they can grow it. Uh, sales will increase, margins can increase. So a lot of variables to allow companies to uh, combat inflation on different levels, either through productivity or price increases or some other combinations. But basically, this is saying that in most of these scenarios. Equities do really well against inflation. 90% of the time, if they're low, if they're below 3% and rising, 
90% of the time if they're low 3% and, and falling. The one time they don't is about 50% of the time they'll, they'll um, outperform inflation if it's high and rising. And so we kind of looked at, okay, but if it's high and rising, what's going to do best? And you get to things like energy and consumer staples. And we've tilted some portfolios a little bit towards that way uh, because those in the past have been pretty good you know, ener- uh, inflation beaters and outperform the market as a whole. I kind of went back out of interest. I mean, companies change all the time. There aren't, you know, so between mergers and everything, it's difficult to get a direct comparison. But here's three companies that were very much around in the 70s. And, uh, and you know, uh, so if you bought um, uh, um, Chevron up here, good, good company, Chevron, and we got some alumni of Chevron in our, in our, in our group. Um, I mean, you made four times your money in a period of uh, eight years. Makes sense. I mean, you know, it was obviously a high oil, you know, oil prices went up by a factor of 10 between 73 and 79. So if you were pulling the stuff out of the ground, you're extremely well placed to do well out of it. Um, Exxon did pretty well as well. And so did Altria, uh, which is the old Philip Morris, which is the old, yeah, tobacco company. Uh, and these, and inflation on this chart was about 180. So there, are, I just picked these three, but you can pick, I think I looked at about five or others, you know, Kimberly Clark, uh, Walmart, and some of those other, you know, consumer staple companies, um, and they did very well in inflation. Um, you know, a company like Dollar Tree will probably do really well in inflation if you get it. But this is the high percent, and this is the three percent and accelerating level. But it means that if we if we do get that, we've got tools to uh, to to to, um, to beat to beat inflation. So. Um, just very quickly on the what's done well, we've continued to see the top five companies do well. This is year to date. This wasn't the case back in May. Remember back then I was saying, look at the small company, this line, they're like screaming ahead, you know, and the top five guys had sort of, you know, had a tired out 2020 and we're taking a break. Well, now we've just seen a reversal of that. Top fives are up 29%, uh, the top 125, the S&P is at 24. That's, yeah, it's, it's a good number. Uh, small caps have been flat for a while. They did most of their run earlier. And the place where you didn't want to be was uh, emerging markets. And actually, it says top five here for 5%, but that's international. That's EFA, uh, Europe, Australia, Far East, mostly the European, uh, UK, and Japanese stock markets. So it's been a very much a US-led and, uh, and large market again, but quite a lot of switchbacks between those periods. So... Um, where are we, I tried to say where we're we going in 2022. I talked about, you know, I think the consumer's in good, good health. They're not overly indebted. They don't have mortgage problems. They don't have high credit card balances. They don't have a lot of fixed consumer debt, either in the form of um, uh, mortgages or auto loans. Uh, and they've got a very high household net worth and they're seeing some reasonable increases in nominal wages, not necessarily real wages, and uh, they're, they're back at work and generally feeling more confident. Um, I think that you know, we might see some of this postponing of buying until they see the inflation number roll off, roll off a bit. Um, the hiring side has very much picked up. I think that there could be a few blips, especially as the seasonals are so strange this year because everything's had to be adjusted for what was, you know, what people thought was a normal school year or calendar year. Uh, but I think generally we'll see some you know, good hiring practices or you know, pick up uh, uh, even after when you've adjusted for the weird Christmas uh, seasonal ups and downs. Now, bonds are trailing for now. Uh, we haven't been jumping into bonds with both feet. We don't think, you know, the 10 years going about to go to 50 basis points. Um, we've tried to keep that with good credit. Quickest way to lose money in the bond market is to chase high yield or triple C's or private bank loans or, uh, you know, just, just, just badly covered, badly in, in gen, bad bond indentures. So we're kind of sticking with a good, uh, high quality uh, credit. Um, and we're using uh, real assets. You know, real assets um, like real estate that's done very well for us this year um, because they've got kind of an inflation kick in there on the on the on the income side. And then the bond ladders for some for some clients. That's a way of sort of making sure that we've got an average average maturity of about five or six duration, maybe a little bit longer than that. And um, and and then and as the uh, bonds roll off, we're able to invest them into higher uh, higher paying coupons uh, at the longer end. And I still think, you know, we're sort of careful equity selection. We dialed down emerging markets. There'll be a time to get back into that. Maybe not now, though. Uh, in fact, definitely not now. Um, but 
I think some of this um, tilting towards the staples and, you know, we don't want to go gung, gung ho to energy. They've had a great run, but, um, but, but those I think will do pretty well if you think, if you think the inflation is going to run uh, even for the next six, nine months or well, then and unfortunately you may not like it, but you know, putting money into the major energy uh, sectors and alternative energy as well um, would be you know, a pretty good, pretty good choice of uh, equity selection. So um, I'll stop it there. I hopefully there's some questions. I thank you for indulging me uh, and for being on the call. Um, if there are any questions, I don't know if we have any. Um, doesn't look like it. Uh, but if there are any that people have uh, want to come afterwards, then please feel free to email me at cthwaites at BNJ Advisors or just contact your normal uh, contact or financial advisor at, um, at Brown Janikowski. Uh, I hope I'm not missing some questions. I'll just check my texts to make sure uh, they're not coming in through there. Green, apparently, everything I was talking about was green, not, not red. Okay, then uh, thank you very much. Happy New Year and holidays to everybody. Um, I'm going to read the disclosure now. For those of you that love disclosure, this is for you. And uh, if I don't speak to you soon, we'll check in with each other uh, in the new year. Thank you very much. And I'm just getting to disclosure. <laughs> um, Here we go. Discussion of the investment, investment strategy, research, investment process, Brown Janikowski of the date indicated was the day of this presentation, subject to change without notice. Chance illustrated throughout this presentation may be updated periodically. We have no obligation to provide advised assessments in the event of changed circumstances. We cannot assure that the type of investment mentioned in this presentation will produce intended results or outperform any other investments in the future. We will reserve the right to change our investment perspective and outlook without notice as market conditions dictate and as additional information becomes available. Diversification does not protect an investor from market risk, does not ensure a profit. Information is subject to unintentional errors, emissions changes without notice, all sources of facts unless otherwise noticed. While we gather this information from sources believed to be reliable, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements or numerical data in this presentation. References to individual security should not be construed as a recommendation. I will sell that security. Securities noted in this presentation are only several of the successful as well as unsuccessful investments by Brown and Cost. We do not represent all the securities via purchase, sold, or recommended. Index returns include dividend and reinvested dividends and interest do not reflect commissions or transaction costs. Mutual fund returns include reinvestment dividends, capital gains distributions. Mutual fund returns are net of the fund performance. However, they do not reflect Brown Janikowski's fees. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. We may reference various hypothetical investment illustrations. These are for illustration purposes only, not for investment recommendations, do not guarantee indication of future results.